Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today, we have a hard-to-pronounce name on the show. Maybe for you, but not for me. Bozi Tatarovic. He's on with us. You know him as a Twitter extraordinaire, IMSA mechanic, writer, he does it all. Oh, I forgot Biscuit Connoisseur. Of course, that should be the lead here. I'm burying that. He does it all in the motorsports world, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear our conversation. Plus, we got Michigan to recap, the Daytona regular season finale to preview. So much action. I love it. Can't get enough. But before we dive into any of that, as you guys know, we got to pay homage to a NASCAR legend and not Joey Logano for the number 22, which, yes, I thought that we would. But then again, it is Papa Siegel's Wayback segment, so take it away. Thank you, Duve, and welcome, everyone, to episode 122. I know who Davey's probably expecting me to talk about this week, but the CEO of Aw Frick is going to be saying that when he hears that we're not discussing Joey Logano. Instead, we turn the Wayback lens on an early NASCAR racing legend. Edward Glenn Roberts was born and raised in Florida and earned his nickname of Fireball, not because of anything having to do with racing, but because he was a baseball player with a good fastball. He attended the University of Florida, just as I and all of my family did, and raced dirt tracks on weekends. His success got him noticed, and he would win 33 times over a 206-race cup career, spanning 15 years. 152 of those races and 30 of the wins came in the 22 car. At the 1964 World 600, Roberts crashed trying to avoid Ned Jarrett and Junior Johnson, who had collided and spun out. They were different times before the advent of car and driver safety measures, and the crash was bad. Roberts slammed backward into the inside retaining wall, flipped over, and his car burst into flames. Gentleman Ned stopped to rescue Roberts from his burning car, but by the time he was pulled out, Roberts had suffered second and third degree burns over 80% of his body. He was airlifted to a nearby hospital and appeared that he would pull through after several weeks. However, he took a turn for the worse, contracted sepsis and pneumonia, and ultimately succumbed to his burns. Roberts wasn't the only driver to die after a fiery crash that year. His close friend Joe Weatherly had died after one at Riverside earlier that year. And Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald suffered similar fates at the Indy 500, six days after Roberts' crash. Their deaths led to an increase in research on fire retardant uniforms, it also led to the development of a racing fuel cell. As if Fireball Roberts perishing in a racing fire wasn't ironic enough, it was reported at the time 
that the 600 was to be one of Robert's last races since he had taken a PR job with the Falstaff Brewing Company. Fireball Roberts was named one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1988, and he was posthumously inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2014. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. Yes, did not know some of those facts about Glenn Fireball Roberts, so thank you for enlightening us and myself with that useful information. Thank you, thank you, thank you, as always. Let's get this episode started, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned... Robin's not in the apartment right now. You guys hear that voice crack? That was weird. Robin's not in the apartment right now, so I can scream and shout and do whatever I want, and I don't need to get glared at from across the apartment. Anyways, let's talk Michigan. The Firekeepers Casino 400 from MIS. Let's recap it. YRB earns his second win of the season, first multi-win season of his Cup Series career. Pretty wild to think about, considering I feel like he's been around for a long time at this rate. But the choose rule came into effect in a big way and had a big factor in determining this race because the top was the dominant lane, especially on the restarts. That's where the resin was. That's where some of the grip was. But Blaney said, all right, y'all ain't going to take the bottom? Fine by me. He takes the bottom. He gets some clean air. He's able to complete a pass on the restart. And the rest was history. He set sail from there, and he wins his second race of the year. Again, first season in his career with multiple wins. That's a big deal for Ryan Blaney. Pretty fun race at the end, and you saw that he was pretty jacked up. He was amped, and he doesesn't usually get like that. So how was it? Yeah, it's huge. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, Atlanta was a long time ago, uh, you know, and, um, you know, it's uh, it's really good to, to start building momentum and, and being kind of on the upslope here going into the playoffs, um, you know, rising to the occasion and, and everyone did that today. Um, I'm very proud of the work everyone did today on, on getting our car better and better and giving us a shot there at the end uh, to make something happen. So uh, yeah, huge momentum builder uh, for everybody. Um, great, you know, get some more playoff points and try to jump up there in the points even more. So, uh, but then we still got, you know, good speedway race next week to, to finish out the regular season. So hopefully we can have a good run there um, and then start the 10 week stretch. He held off William Byron for the win. I kind of made fun of that in my TikTok because, as we know, Willie B is dating Blaney's younger sister, and Blaney and Byron were racing each other hard a little bit earlier in the season. So made light of that in my TikTok this week. Which, by the way, your guys' reaction to the Indianapolis one blew me away. I'm so glad you guys liked it. Um, the one about Michigan's doing pretty well, too. And stay tuned because I may potentially have some cool stuff in the works with that. So just know I appreciate you guys' support with that. Let's talk about Michigan a little bit more, though. The resin worked pretty well. I mean, I'm still a 750-horsepower guy. I wouldn't call myself a 750-truther, so to speak, like maybe Jeff Gluck's fans on the teardown might. I mean, the 550 is fine. I, I prefer the 750 package, but this race was fine. It was good. Um, Larson was probably the quickest car again. Uh, Chevrolet in general, they were really fast. But it wound up being a difference between pit strategy, the choose rule, clean air, restarts, momentum, the whole shebang when it comes to 550 stuff. But I think that NASCAR may have found a sweet spot in terms of track prep. And I also don't love track prep. I would just prefer if they left it as is 
and the racing was good that way. But I understand why they're doing what they're doing. They're trying to make the best product with what they have. But it seems like the resin works better than the PJ1, whether it be on concrete. We saw that at Nashville. Whether it be on asphalt here, as we saw at Michigan. I think it's good everywhere. So I'd keep using that. A couple other takeaways. Kevin Harvick, who had won the last three races consecutively at MIS, complete non-factor. Barely heard about him all day. Was running in the mid-pack, 15th-ish place car. I think he ended up finishing right outside the top 10. That is a sign of concern. And I, I think that they've been concerned all year long, but especially at a track like Michigan where Kevin and Stuart Haas have been so good for so long, that's bad. It was not good. My grandma... Um, she always sends me texts when she watches the race and she's a Kevin Harvick fan, probably because of my prior years. And she was very excited when he's in the Bush light Apple car. Cause she likes the, the paint scheme. She goes, Ooh, he's in the red car today. It's going to be a good day. It was not a good day for Kevin Harvick, which means it was not a great day for grandma, but I digress. Let's also touch on the Brad Keselowski, Austin Dillon situation. That was kind of bizarre. Wasn't it coming to the stage end? Dylan side drafting Brad on the left side, gets down, gets the position, gets that extra point. And then Brad just turns a left and hooks Dylan into the wall, going 180 plus, really hard hit. Thankfully, Austin was okay. Uh, RC was ready to fight somebody, so somebody hopefully held his watch. But that was crazy. And Brad took responsibility for it, said that he hated it. Austin didn't really seem too mad about it. Um, I don't know if they've talked. Brad said that he hasn't returned his text and he doesn't blame him for that. I'm sure that they'll be okay at Daytona. They'll probably have a conversation, but it, I didn't think there was anything malicious there. Um, you guys might think differently. Brad's smart enough to know what consequences are on the line. If he were to be in the three cars position, I don't think he would have done that on purpose. Now you go down to Arca, what we saw with Dad Moffitt, Drew Dollar, unfortunately, Tim Richmond getting involved. That's a different story, but these are former cup champions we're talking about in Brad Keselowski and cup winners in Austin Dillon. So I don't think there was anything malicious there. Just some unfortunate circumstances there. Also, just to put a bow on the cup series, Ford, their sixth win in a row at Michigan. Talking about bringing that Heritage Trophy back home to Dearborn. Those are some happy folks at the Blue Oval Brigade. Winner, winner, Michigan dinger as A.J. Allmendinger continues his hot streak, wins again for College Racing in not one, not two, but three separate overtimes. <laughs> Finally, mercifully, that race is over, I think. It might still be going on. But that's got to feel pretty good for A.J. Allmendinger, his second win in about six or seven days, dating back to the cup race at the Indy Road Course. He's on fire. These restarts at a, at a place like Michigan, you know, it's more dictated off of the guy restarting behind you. For sure, you got to get a good restart, good launch. But, uh, you know, I knew, of course, Brandon Jones wants to win the race, and, and he was the one that kept restarting behind me. But, uh, you know, he was he was great. He, he pushed me all the way through one and two. I think he knew that if we got side by side down the front straightaway on the restart that we'd probably hurt both of ourselves and, and not, not give either one of us a chance to win. So, for sure, just trying to time the restarts different the best that I could. Um, get through the gears clean. That was something I struggled with early in the race. So I was a little bit nervous about that. So um, I kind of, our car was really good in the short run. So I felt like if I get off turn two with the lead, then we'd have a really good shot at it. But, you know, when you're side by side down in turn one and 
Brandon a couple times got a run on the outside when I was trying to defend the inside. So uh, it was definitely nerve wracking. Uh, the second restart, I thought, okay, I have a good one here. Let's stay green. And immediately the caution came out. So my nerves were starting to get a little bit shot there. Down to the truck series. Gateway seemed pretty fun and interesting as well. Sheldon Creed ends up winning that race. He dominated pretty much. I think he won every single stage. But this comes after the power went out and eventually also mercifully came back on. As I mentioned, he dominated the race, though. I like Gateway. I enjoy it. It's fun to watch. And there's been rumors about the Cup Series getting a date there for next year. So if they do, they need to figure out their power situation because that was not good. But here's Sheldon Creed talking about his win that propels him to the next round of the Truck Series playoffs. We've had a couple weeks to work on this truck, obviously. Uh, it's a new truck, so everything we've learned uh, throughout the season is is applied to these trucks that we're bringing. Um, and, and yeah, we've, we've learned a lot this season. We've had a tough time. We had really good notes from last year uh, here and, and just applied them and uh, spent some time with Chevy in the simulator and, and just, um, just tried to make it as best we could and, and just a really, really good truck tonight. I feel like that's probably one of the most dominating trucks I've had. Um, I lost a lead there to my teammate on the restart and, and he showed me a couple of things. And then uh, I just knew I needed to execute once I got back to the lead. Um, I didn't want to give it up again. So just did my best to, to stay out front the rest of the night. Before we get to our chat with Bozy this week, we got another sponsor read on the pod. You already know what we're talking about. We're a sex positive world. We're a sex positive podcast. So let me tell you about adamandeve.com. You guys know free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to spice up your bedroom. Well, that's even better. You can select almost any one item for up to 50% off. That's half. And then Adam and Eve loads on some free stuff. You can get a sexy item for him a special gift for her, a third item you'll both enjoy. If you enter the offer code DAVY at checkout, again, not spelled correctly, D-A-V-Y at checkout, it's a meme, we're leaning into it at this point. Enter that promo code at checkout and you'll get 10 tantalizing free gifts. I'm telling you, Adam and Eve, they love giving away free stuff. You can get six free spicy movies and free shipping. So much free stuff. So much spice and pizzazz. That's offer code Davy D A V Y at checkout at adamandeve.com. Spice up your life a little bit. And now making a hard left turn, pun intended. Let's throw it over to our chat with Bozy Tatarovich. As I mentioned, he's a biscuit connoisseur, a Twitter professional, an IMSA mechanic, a racing spaces host, an overlord, softball man. He does it all, and he has so many cool stories. He has an unbelievable perspective on life, coming from Sarajevo all the way over to North Carolina, getting introduced to racing at a pretty young age and working his way up in the sport in different garages, developing connections. It's a really cool story from a really cool and interesting, eclectic dude. So I'll get out of the way and let you guys hear my conversation with Bozy Tatarovic. It is an honor and a pleasure to have on Victory Lane this week a Twitter professional, a race car mechanic, a motorsports journalist, automotive reporter. I'm going to say your name right. Bozy Tatarovic. How did I do? You, you got it. That's really good. That's impressive for a first try. Extremely impressive. Even like people on their fifth try don't usually get it that good. So that's that impressed. 
Okay, good. I have to thank Aaron Bearden because I remember listening to you on uh, Motorsports Beat Podcast, and I I was like, okay, Aaron, better go over the pronunciation because I have no idea how to say it. But then I was prepping for this chat, and I'm like, I didn't even listen back to it. But I remembered. I was like, okay, I know it's not Tatarovic. It's not Tartarovic. It's Tatarovic. So I got it. You got it, and that's smart. That's uh, I, I'm a, I'm a big podcast listener and so i uh I, I use that as a reference for a lot of things so I, yeah. I i appreciate that approach yes good i i was gonna say everybody probably butchers the hell out of your last name so it's nice when i get it right oh yeah definitely definitely impressive <laughs> yeah cool well bozy everybody hopefully knows who you are and loves you for your content on twitter as i mentioned you're a race car mechanic you write about race cars and automotive uh, things in general, like we're going to tackle all that. Cause you're one of the most impressive, intriguing, kind of a Swiss army knife type of guy in motorsports. And I want to hit on all of it, but people that may sure. not know you and may not follow you on Twitter or Instagram, whatever, maybe saying Tatarovich, that's an interesting last name. Doesn't really sound American. I can tell you has a little bit of an accent. That is true because Bozy, you are Serbian American. And I like how in your Twitter bio, it says, that you're in High Point via Sarajevo. Not the most not the most orthodox path, I guess you can say. <laughs> so take the listeners and myself through it. How did you get here in the North Carolina area in America working in motorsports all the way from Serbia? So I was I was originally born in what was the former Yugoslavia then back in the 80s. Um, I was born in Sarajevo, which is now Bosnia. I'm uh, uh, of Bosnian Serb origin, and I lived there until uh, 1995. And many people will know that there was a civil war in Yugoslavia as a country in Bosnia, as a country broke up in the early 90s. And that's basically why I'm here. So we were kind of gone from our area, you know, just because of conflict and everything that happened and entered the refugee program and ended up basically being approved through an organization called IOM to come to the United States. And we had a few choices and North Carolina seemed like the best option based on the information they gave us. And there was a nonprofit here through a local church that was willing to sponsor us to help us get here. So in 1995, I was nine years old. Uh, my brother was seven and my parents were in their mid to late thirties then. Uh, we came here and settled in North Carolina, uh, you know, immigrated here and started the process, you know, towards becoming permanent residents and eventually American citizens. That's awesome. And doing all that at nine years old must have been a culture shock. Uh, why do I have to leave home? What am I going to do about my friends? There must have been a whole lot of stuff going on just on the personal side for you as a nine year old, leaving the life that you knew halfway across the world and going to good old North Carolina. It's uh, it was it was definitely a big difference. And some of it was a shock, but a lot of it was just I think uh, me and my brother were sheltered from a lot of what was going on around us, even though we did see a lot of stuff and see a lot of, you know, war wartime things. Our parents kind of tried to make sure that we we could live the best life possible in the situation where we were. So they really helped us move along. And even, you know, everything, you know, that we were going through, you know, we weren't aware that we lost our home, that my parents lost all their belongings, that they lost everything they had to their name that, you know, we basically came here with, you know, they had a couple hundred dollars to their name and we came here as refugees to live in a housing project. So, you know, we weren't aware of any of that, even though we did have some stresses and traumas just because it's a war, but it was actually 
not not as bad as you know some would imagine just because they did such a good job of trying to protect us yeah i know it's a bit of a cliche question you probably get a lot but now that you're you know an adult a fully fledged adult and i know you still have relationships with your parents we're going to get to the bread that your mom made because that looks bomb um I'm sure that you and your brother now looking back on that time when you guys uprooted your entire family and your lives because not necessarily you wanted to, but you kind of were forced to now, you know, looking back on that and understanding how the world works and you got bills to pay, you got mouths to feed, you got all these things to take care of and do probably gives you a bigger appreciation for your parents and the family dynamic that you had at that time. Cause again, like you were nine, so maybe you understood what was happening, but you didn't really get the bigger picture. That's very true. And me and my brother have had these conversations recently. And even, you know, even when we started to become adults and started to earn our own money, just putting all the dots together, even just doing the math on paper and realizing what they were able to do for us with so little with, you know, my parents were professionals back home and they came here and none of none of the accreditations, you know, from back home counted here. So even though, you know, they, they you know went to law school, accounting school back home, none of that counted here because they were coming from a war zone. So they went to work in a furniture shop. So they came here and were working for like four seventy-five an hour or something, something to that effect. And just you know, thinking about that is you know, me and my brother will go out to a nice dinner now, and we'll go out to a nice dinner with them sometimes, and we'll spend more on dinner than they combined sometimes made in a week. And just having that perspective is that with that combined, they were provide housing for us, toys, food, everything, and it's just it's just hard you know, to just even make sense of it. But it's just because they sacrificed so much when we first came here, even, you know, even though we didn't have the best of conditions, they ended up, you know, working sometimes two or three jobs at a time. I know that, uh, you know, at a certain point in time, my dad was working like first and third shift and my mom was working second shift, you know, in factories when we first came here, just so they could provide for us, but also so they wouldn't have to, you know, spend some of that money on childcare, So they switched off and they rarely saw each other for like, you know, a whole year or two, just, just because they sacrificed so much to, to be able to get us here. And eventually both of them went back to school. So even after completing so much schooling back home, both of them went back to school so they could have better careers here and provide for us. And that's my biggest takeaway here. You know, it took, I, I may not have understood it as a child, but as I grew up, my biggest takeaway was that my parents could have scraped by and survived back home and, you know, found a decent situation for them. But the reason they came here is for me and my brother to be successful. And, you know, we tried to take advantage of that every day and try to appreciate that as much as we can. Yeah. I mean, again, as cliche as it is, it's a really heartwarming, really cool story. And you're definitely making your parents proud. No doubt about that, especially with your food takes, which we'll get to. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably sound a little bit ignorant here, but I don't know a ton about Serbia. I mean, Probably the the biggest thing I know is Novak Djokovic, and that's the cliche sure. thing, you know? So yeah. tell me a little bit about Serbian culture. Like, how was the culture shock coming over there to the United States? And did you kind of realize that you were in a different place? And of all places to be in the South and North Carolina, you know, there's different portions of the U.S., obviously, now that you know, that are different culturally. But at that point, it was all you really knew. So the culture shock going from Europe all the way over here to the Charlotte area must have been pretty big. It was a difference. So, you know, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, the whole Balkan region is yeah. is a very unique culture. So there's influences, you know, Central, Southeastern European influences uh, from places like Greece 
and Eastern European influences from other Slavic lands like Russia. And then there's also influences from like Turkey because it was part of the Ottoman Empire for a while. So it's like a big mix of some like Central European stuff, some very Eastern European stuff, and then some like, you know, Turkish, uh, Turkish stuff. And so all those cultures melt together. So we have like our food, for example, shows that the best is that we have a lot of food that is very similar to Greek food, but a slightly different twist, very similar to Turkish food, but with slightly different twist, and then maybe some Russian food. So it's all kind of mixed in. And then there is a little bit of a Western European influence because we were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you'll have something like, you know, Wiener schnitzel just mixed in with all of that with, you know, <laughs> stuffed grape leaves over here. So food, I feel like best represents the culture and where we came from. So Yugoslavia before the war was a fairly modern country. Uh, of course, for a certain amount of time was under communism and stuff, but it was fairly modern for European standards and, you know, my uh, my parents, you know, my father was an attorney. My mom was an accountant, and we lived near, you know, near one of the one of the bigger cities. And so it was, you know, it was that kind of lifestyle. But also, my grandparents had a farm, so we spent a lot of time there on the farm. So that was kind of what I came from. And then war broke out, and there was, you know, hiding and moving around and going yeah. through different parts, you know, parts of parts of the region. And then we came here. So we came from living, you know, in uh fairly uh fairly nice area so to say you know kind of middle class upper middle class and going to a farm where there's a lot of stuff to moving here with no money going to a housing project so it was a part of that was just the big difference and change but the part of it was that we went from that upper middle class to war zone hiding in basements and then to this housing project so for a lot of people that would be a culture shock and they would be like oh my god what is this but for us it felt comfortable because there wasn't bombing and shooting every day. Yeah. You know, it was just, there's stability. So that was like a, you know, big first thing. And then the rest of it was just a lot of differences of, you know, just how things were, you know, went on is that back home, people walked around a lot, you know, before the war and stuff like that, there's public transportation. And here, you know, North Carolina, that's not really a big thing. Everybody has cars, everybody has trucks and trucks were trucks were kind of, you know, being a car person, even as a young kid paying attention to this, that was like the biggest thing I noticed is that we didn't have pickup trucks back home. It was just small hatchbacks and little things like that. So seeing pickup trucks here, even that was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But we started school once we started school just trying to make friends or you know just kind of be part of it me and my brother picked up english quickly and just kind of started blending in so you mentioned you know you got into motorsports and automotive things at an early age so that was before you guys moved to the states back home you you were drawn to things that went fast and made loud noises early yeah that's i think my father is the biggest part of that influence so he was always into cars even as a young kid and i remember back when I was, you know, just small glimpses of things from my childhood when I was four or five, my dad had a Renault four, which is like a French hatchback that he was working on that he bought from somebody, I don't know, had some issues, but it was cheap. and It was a project car. So he would be in the basement, you know, uh, when I was a kid and just, you know, tweaking on that, trying to do some things, trying to fix it up, you know, get it running, make it faster. So I always, that always intrigued me. And I'll, me and me and my brother would always hang out there. And then he had a, 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 a Zastava 850, which is like a, a little, very tiny hatchback that's a, a, a Serbian or Yugoslavian market version of like a Fiat 500 from the 60s. Okay. So on that, like he put a bigger carburetor on, changed some stuff, you know, and I think factory was like 45 horsepower and he increased it to like 60 horsepower, you know, it was like, <laughs> it wasn't a huge deal, but 
all that's kind of just absorbed, you know, all that stuff that, that, yeah. that was happening and, you know, it made it interesting to me. So that was like my childhood. And then coming here, uh, he liked tweaking on cars and doing stuff. And even though he, you know, he, he was, you know, more of like attorney paperwork, that type of career back home, he was like, well, here, instead of working in a factory, maybe I can be a mechanic. So after a couple of years here, he decided to go to school, get some certifications and became a mechanic and then started buying like broken cars to repair at home as a you know, side job. And me and my brother, we started out, you know, when we were early teens, hold the flashlight, hand the tools and stuff like that. Yep. But after a while, he would let us wrench on it or do some things, you know, stuff like that. So we started learning about cars. And by the time, you know, I was eligible to go to driver's ed, like the first class that was available, like after I turned 14 and a half, I signed up for it. I was like, I'm getting my permit immediately to this graduated program. Yeah. And like the day I turned 15, I made them take me so I could get my permit. <laughs> so I could be the first available day I could get my license so I could have it, you know, because yeah. I wanted to drive. And at the time, my, my dad was working at a, at a Mitsubishi dealership and he, uh, he had people that would come in for car repairs and, you know, sometimes the repair would be more than the car was worth. So at the time, this lady came in, she had a 1992 Mitsubishi Diamante. And it had leaky valve stem seals. So basically it was dumping oil into the engine where it shouldn't have been dumping oil into the engine. And the car was worth maybe like $3,000, but the repair would be $5,000, you know, at the dealership. So he offered to buy it from her for like 500 bucks, just as is broken. She's like, okay. So he brought it home and I was just about to turn 16. He's like, I brought you a car. If you can fix it, you'll have something to drive, you know, when you get your license on, when you turn 16. So it was just like a you know, decently nice car, you know, for, for what it was, you know, for a teenager. Yeah. So... Of course, he did most of the work, but he was like, this is what we're fixing. You know, you try and figure it out. But stuff like that made me learn how to work on cars, made me appreciate it even more. So, by you know, like two months before I turned 16, we had that car running, repaired. It was, you know, in good condition. And that was my first car, you know, just driving like that. And that kind of started growing the experience of just being interested in cars. And then over time, we had started buying cars and me and my brother would start helping him flip some of these cars, repair them. We started buying, you know, like uh, crashed cars, broken cars, whatever we could just to fix them. And eventually we opened a shop and even a dealership and an export business, sending cars back home. Wow. And that, yeah, so that was, you know, the focus for most, most of my, you know, teenage years and early twenties was just fix repair stuff. But on the side, I would go to autocrosses and see some stuff like that. And I would occasionally catch a race, you know, an NASCAR race or an IMSA race or a Formula One on TV and stuff like that. And I was right. like, this is kind of cool. But I had never really thought, you know, that I would be involved in it or that I could find a path to it because it just seemed far away. Yeah. Uh, wow. Until, yeah. And then I, it was until a few years ago. So, it, and that's uh, when a friend bought a Miata. And it seems like a lot of people in motorsports start with Miatas. Love Miatas here. Yeah. I've had Josh Balicki and Brad Perez on in the past weeks, and they're big Miata boys. Yeah. It says, well, I've, yeah, I've, I've actually seen Brad's Miata. I've worked on it. Recently, I helped him pull the gearbox out when uh, when he had a tail shaft that broke. But uh, one of my friends, uh, which is kind of related to my writing career, one of my friends, Jack Baruth, he was my editor at a, at a blog that I was writing for at the time, which was around 2014, 2015, somewhere around that time frame. He bought an X race car spec Miata. And basically, uh, he bought a car. It was been sitting for a while. He's like, I know you fix stuff. I know you've done some, you know, small stuff. I hadn't really like gone to a lot of races or done any race mechanic stuff. He's like, he's like, if I send you this car, can you and your brother, uh, you know, fix it up? So we're like, sure. So me and my brother Boyan, uh, we got the car here, and 
uh, we're like, well, let's figure out what's wrong with it. So we started going through it and we found all this stuff and it's, you know, still more from a repair kind of, you know, shop perspective. Right. And so we fixed that up and we're like, okay, we're sending the car back to you. And he's like, can you guys come out for this race and just help support it, you know, see it. So sure. So like I had been done small stuff at racetracks, like alignments for track days for people that had like track toys and stuff, but I hadn't really been to even a grassroots race as a race mechanic. So this was mm -hmm. American endurance racing. It was like grassroots sports car racing. It's kind of like so your first foray into the world. Yeah. Correct. correct. So we show up. He's like, this is what we're doing. He's like, can you guys do a pit stop? I was like, I've never done a pit stop in my life. <laughs> but like, we'll figure wolves. it out. Damn. Yeah, we'll figure it out. So like, this was a grassroots series. So the pit stops were like three minutes long. So you had plenty <laughs> of time to do everything, you know, and like you had to shut off the car. You could only, you know, it was like, you know, this whole process that like, there's plenty of time to do it. So like, okay, so. We went to the race, we figured out some other stuff to do on the car and that uh, we did the pit stops and all this other stuff. We placed decently well, I can't remember now, but it's like fifth or sixth in a class of like 12 cars. So I was like, this yeah. is kind of fun. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that 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 race weekend for that race was a turning point, both for me and uh, racing career and my writing career, because Jack was an editor uh, at, uh, at the time, he was an editor at Truth About Cars. Right now, he's an editor for me. Well, he's a media director at Haggerty, so he's the boss of my editor at Haggerty now. Full circle. Um, yeah, yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting. But uh, uh, the other people that were, it was an endurance race, so it was people swapping us. The other people they invited, there were a bunch of other editors from a bunch of other publications mm. who I ended up writing for eventually after I made, like, that was the first connection I made that weekend. So, like, Travis Sokolsky was a very good friend of mine. He became uh, editor-in-chief of Road and & Track, and uh, Matt Farah, who does the Smoking Tire YouTube channel. There was, you know, Sam Smith, who also works with a bunch of, like, well-known editors and writers. Everybody was hanging out that weekend. So it, like, sparked the racing part and introduced me to a bunch of writing people. And that was kind of started both of my kind of current adventures. That's pretty cool. So the racing part of your life, because it's more than a career, it seems like it drives everything in your life. That started once you got over here. There wasn't really any exposure to racing back home. It kind of started when you got here. Uh, that yeah, back home, the really only exposure I really had was watching a Formula One race occasionally. That's like little glimpses I remember as a kid. But other than that, I wasn't like a, a huge fan or anything. Like even you know, even though I lived in North Carolina, like I didn't see even a lot of the local stuff until I was like in my twenties. So it wasn't something like a lot of people that grew up, you know, from eight years old, like glued to the TV. You know, it wasn't. It was just like, hey, this is cool. So like I live, you know, fairly close to Bowman Gray. So that was like something I saw, you know, first, basically. Bowman Gray and Virginia National. See. Yeah. And Virginia National Raceway, VIR. So that's mm -hmm. that's kind of if people kind of, you know, are confused by my views or just the way I look at racing where, you know, I'm this sports car, GT car guy. But then I also enjoy short track racing. That's because like my my yeah. first exposure to racing was road course racing at VIR and short track racing at Bowman Gray. And that shaped like my whole outlook on racing going forward. Two different sides of the spectrum, safe to say. <laughs> yeah, most definitely, most definitely. But it was, you know, and that was kind of so I wasn't, you know, a traditional fan, but the connection with Jack uh, and his wife, Charlie, they bought the car together. They both drove it. It's kind of what pushed me through. So I did that for a whole year with them, those races, me and my brother, and got better at it and figured out more stuff. And I was like, this is really, really fun. Yeah. So at the end of, I would say it's 2016, maybe 2017, Jack and Charlie traded a car, a Corvette they had for an Accord race car that was eligible to race in Pirelli World Challenge. 
it was still homologated for that year and they traded for it and they started talking to some people and they were like, I think we can get enough money together to run this car for a race at Watkins Glen, a pro race. So they got some people, you know, do tires and some other stuff. And they got some support from Pirelli. So he called me up. He's like, you want to crew chief this car? Let's go run, you know, run, you know, world challenge, you know, touring car. I was like, sure. <laughs> kind of the same deal as doing that first pit stop. Like, we'll go and figure it out. <laughs> so I uh, got my car, drove 12 hours to Watkins Glen. Uh, they pulled up, you know, in their truck and a U-Haul trailer with like a you know small box of tools. We yep. didn't have any scales. We didn't have any you know equipment. So we pulled up up there. You know, I, this is the first time I've seen the car. Uh, and, you know, we had some friends that were helping out. So we just started going through it. I went through it, you know, just kind of did some basic stuff on it. We ended up, uh, we didn't, since we didn't have scales, we ended up waiting until like everybody left and then pushed the car onto the scales in tech. So we could see what the alignment was like and make some adjustments and then push the back school. to a little area. Yeah. Yeah. Like we didn't, we didn't even have a, like an easy up, like the car was just sitting out in the space that they had assigned to us. Like that's like that low budget, but, uh, and we only had one set of tires from what I remember correctly. So that set of tires, uh, wow. We went out and practice, just did a few laps, just shake the car out, see how it feels. They wouldn't want to waste those tires. He pulled back in and then he took it in qualifying. He only did like a couple laps in qualifying again, not wanting to waste the one set of tires we have. And I think he qualified like 25th. And uh, so we started the race and did the race. Uh, started 25th. I think he passed like three or four cars right at the start. Ended up finishing like 14th, which was incredible for us, you know, just pulling a car off a U-Haul trailer. He had never driven uh, Jack yeah. and driven in this series or any of you know that specifically that's a so it was like yeah it was an incredible weekend but that also that weekend also just walked around the paddock and started talking to people introducing myself but that was basically the spark that took me to pro racing because i did that race you know i had a good showing and then uh at the 2019 at the beginning of 2019 some of the people i met there i went to talk to them it was the subaru team that also ran sro you know touring car tca and I was like, hey, I know the guys like, I don't know if you remember me. I stopped by for a couple of minutes. You know, do, if you guys need help, let me know. So 2019, uh, they were racing at Coda. He called me up. He's like, hey, I do need help. I have an extra car. I'm going to need an extra mechanic, you know, show up, do whatever. So we showed up down there. I went to Coda. I hadn't worked on this car before, but I, uh, the driver that I got assigned to, to crew chief the car for was Nick Whitmer. He was a very good driver. Uh, he was really good with the car. He is very knowledgeable. So like, let's start tweaking on it. So we started working together. He took the car out, put it on pole and we won the race. And that kind of started like my, you know, introduction to pro racing on a positive note. And then yeah. the funny thing is from that, that was my first debut with a win. And from there, I think the next five teams that I started with, uh, the first race with every team, uh, except for one team, we won. So wow. I raced with them in the Subaru. I raced with the uh, Lap Motorsports Honda and TCR. Uh, uh, we won the first race I raced with them. We actually met through that. And then uh, there was uh, 47 Motorsports Hyundai TCR. Only finished third there in the first race. And then I started with my current team, which was A Ambassador Sullivan, which is Ambassador Sullivan. Now we won that race. So I've had ha I've had some good luck uh, with uh, with the teams I worked with. But it all kind of like I said, it all kind of boils down to that Miata and that one weekend that all all sparked the whole whole progression. Yeah, Brad's listening, and he's gonna he's gonna say you're damn right. It came down to a Miata, so of course. But you kind of <laughs> answered my next question, which was because people now know you working for Vassar Sullivan, right? So what led you there and where you are now 
is a confluence of all these different things working for countless different teams and countless different positions, low budget, medium budget, high budget, Coda, VI, like all these different places doing all these different roles. And you're clearly very good at networking, getting your name out there saying, look, if you need somebody, I'm available. And one day Vassar Sullivan came calling, you were available or made yourself available. And now you've been working for them for a handful of years now. So that's a pretty cool story. Yeah, the, the, the Vassar Sullivan deal was just a chance encounter. So that happened actually during COVID. So uh, basically, I was working for this Hyundai TCR team. And uh, I signed on with them at the beginning of 2020. And everything was going well. Uh, they, were, they had one car. They were getting a second car. I was going to car chief the second car. And we had this whole setup. And we were scheduled. I was scheduled to start with them at Sebring. And had plane booked, all this other stuff. Um, and then, you know, pandemic, everything got shut down three days before yep. we we're supposed to fly out. Yep. So no racing. And the other funny, which we'll connect back in later. The other funny thing is I was going to Sebring or I was already planning to go to Sebring, uh, as a guest of Toyota to check out their WEC team, uh, for some stuff I was doing, just writing, blogging. And they're like, well, since you're here, check out the WEC team. We'll introduce you to the people that run our Lexus team. And maybe they'll give you some cool stuff to write about. Like, yeah, that'll be kind of interesting. You know, we'll see what, what that's all about. So pandemic starts, racing stops, pandemic, you know, racing resumes after the pandemic last summer. And the Hyundai team's like, well, the second car, there's no more funding because of the pandemic. So we're only to one car, but we want to keep you on. Um, so we're just going to have you as an extra, you know, mechanic kind of helper to the car chief on the car because, you know, we want to have you if we do, you know, expand later on. So you're, you know, part of the team. It's like, sure. So I go race with them, do a few races, and it just there's a lot of stuff going on, but the uh, the 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 car was decided decided to shut down the program. The person that was sponsoring it, that was behind it, decided not to fund it anymore. And you know the owner was like, "Listen, it's like I can't afford to keep you. We're shutting down the car." You know, so this was like a week before the Mid Ohio race last year. So he's like, you know, he's like, I'll call you if we get, you know, funding for other car, but he's like, I don't have anything for now. You should go look for something else. So, okay. Yeah. So uh, that was a week before, you know, mid Ohio and IMSA, I know the GT teams, uh, the substitute races, one of them was coming to the Charlotte Roval. So it was like, and that was immediately after mid Ohio. So it's like, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call email team managers and say, listen, I just lost this gig because the car lost funding. This is my experience. And I live near Charlotte, so you don't have to fly me out. You don't have to put me up. If you want to give me a tryout, I will come to Charlotte, work for a couple of days. You can see what I'm like. If you like me, you can sign me out for the rest of the season. So I just started basically it. just cold calling, yeah, team managers, emailing. And Ambassador Sullivan at the time was based in Canada. And because of all the pandemic restrictions, they had some trouble getting people back and forth across the border. And so uh, they replied back like, hey, like we could probably use some help. And they're like, let's do a phone interview. So I went to the phone interview, talked to like, okay, we like you. And then two hours later, team manager calls back. He's like, hey, he's like, we could definitely use you at the Roval, but can you fly to Ohio tomorrow? Because we could use you at mid-Ohio this weekend. Like, sure. <laughs> so that's how the adventure started. So I showed up at mid-Ohio, you know, uh, basically, you know, never, never really worked on a GT car. Most of the cars I'd worked in the past were, you know, smaller kind of touring car type cars, right. but they're like, you know, but race cars are race car as a, as my buddy Trent says, it's four tires in physics. So you, you can figure everything out. So I, you know, got to know the guys we started, you know, we were there for two days. So we had like two practices. So the first ever pit stops I did was in that practice, like the day before the race, we did, I don't know, like 10 practice pit stops, be, you know, being a tire carrier. 
And we're like, you know, just go out there and do it. So I learned the basics of the car. We got some, you know, some choreography down for the pit stop and went out, you know, and Aaron qualified the car on pole, I believe. And I was Aaron and Jack, the same guys are in the car. And I was like, this is kind of cool, you know, <laughs> getting, getting to work on a car that starts on pole. So we went out, did the race. Uh, you know, it was a very stressful pit stop there, you know, coming in from the lead. Now, you know, I just learned this car and I have to do a pit stop on it. Did, you know, did a couple of pit stops. They were pretty decent and uh, went out and won the race. So I was like, this is kind of cool. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a fun debut. And then, you know, that after the race, we finished packing up and uh, the team manager's like, hey, he's like, you know, car chief says, you know, you're good. He's like, he'd like to have you for the next race. So, you know, we'll have you at Charlotte Roval and then we'll discuss some stuff from there. So what Charlotte Roval and Charlotte Roval, of course, wasn't a great experience, mostly because of the rain and just we just didn't have good luck. But after that, they're like, hey, you know, you want to sign on for the rest of the year. And that's kind of how the adventure started. And then uh, conveniently for me, at the end of the last at the end of last year, uh, Jimmy and Sully, who are the team owners, decided to move the team fully in-house for them to run it versus being partnered with AIM Motorsport in Canada and decided to move it here to Concord, North Carolina. <laughs> So the team ended up moving from, yeah, moving from Canada to within driving distance from my house. And then I basically last winter helped them, you know, with the transition because I was one of the people that came from the old team, even though I was only there yeah. for like six months, exactly. Able, yeah. You know, to, to help start the new year. And then I started, you know, the year with full year contract for this year, you know, for the whole IMSA season. And we've been, you know, we've been going all year starting at, you know, Daytona with the qualifying race. And, you know, most recently we were at road America. So we've had, you know, some tough luck, you know, start of the year, but the car's fast, drivers are fast. And like the crew we have this year, is just really incredible chemistry. So I've been really, really happy to you go to every race and just, you know, just to compete. That's awesome. Yeah. So a lot of people probably listening are NASCAR focused, NASCAR centric, but what they know about IMSA, what a lot of people do is a Rolex 24, the 24 hours of Le Mans. And I remember you talking on Aaron's podcast about your experience at the Rolex and how you stayed awake, what you ate, what you did. You, you documented all of it on your Twitter threads, as you always do. So if you haven't checked that out, people, go check it out. But give us a little peek behind the scenes as well in terms of, A, how an IMSA team kind of differs from what you've seen, how NASCAR teams operate, and, B, your experience at the Rolex 24, because I'm sure that event in and of itself, and I use the word event because it's not just a it's not race, it's a marathon, and it's an event, it is probably different than anything you have ever experienced in your life, racing and outside of racing. So the biggest difference I always tell people from my perspective as a race mechanic is in the in top level NASCAR racing, you have race mechanics and, you know, car chiefs and crew chiefs that are separate from the pit crew. The pit crew just cruise the car, does pit stops. But for us, we set up the car, we fix it, we do whatever's needed to prepare it, and then we also pit the car. So that's like the biggest difference from NASCAR to, you know, to sports car racing. And the Daytona event this year was, was a marathon because it was basically us being there for almost two weeks. So it started out with us showing up, I think, like the Wednesday before the qualifying race, which was a 100-minute race to set the order for the 24 that happened, you know, the weekend before the 24. Right. So we spent like three days there. With, we had like two or three practices set up our garage area, prep the car, do setup, do changes, do more practice, do pit stop practice. So, you know, we did a whole bunch of stops. And for us, because it was a lot of new people, this was a lot of time to try to kind of get choreography together for pit stops, get some chemistry going. And because it's such a long race, we have two extra drivers. So we have our, you know, our season long endurance driver that joins us for, you know, 
some of the longer races, Kyle Kirkwood. And then we have the one off the fourth driver for the 24 who was Oliver Gavin this year. So it was, you know, learning them, learning what their styles are, learning what we need to do, you know, for them to make them fit better in the car, what changes need to be made, even, you know, even small stuff. I know, like, I know I spent, you know, a couple of hours just doing seat adjustments and, you know, trying because people are different sizes and you have four different people in the car. So yeah. that's like all, all this prep that happens during the week. So you're, you know, you're at the track for, you know, anywhere from seven to 10 hours a day, just preparing. And then we did the qualifying race thing was that Sunday. So after all of that, we came, we did the qualifying race, did pit stops. And then after the qualifying race, take the car to tech and then break it down. And then that following week, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we broke down the car completely, like basically tore it apart into, you know, bare shell almost <laughs> and just go through everything, replace anything that needs to be replaced, prep it, and then switch it to endurance trim. So uh, most sports cars have like a, Sprint, sprint race trim and an endurance trim and a lot of that what a lot of that amounts to is lighting is a big thing so endurance races have extra lighting so you'll notice if you're in a sprint race uh, on the lexus specifically you'll notice that there's no light bar in the middle on the sprint races but on endurance races there is an extra light bar and some extra lighting on the sides to identify it if they're racing at night right and then there's some other stuff like for brake cooling different grills and things so if you look at pictures straight ahead at the cars you'll notice little things so basically converted it did all that and then started, I think we had three or four practices before the race. So same deal, car goes out, we practice, do all this stuff and prep, prep, prep. And then race day for the 24 starts that Saturday for us at like 6 a.m. So 6 a.m. we're up, go get breakfast, uh, you know, do whatever you need to do to prep. And then I like to arrive at the track, I think at like 7.30. And then from when we arrive at 7.30 until the green flag, which I think was like 2.35 or something right. this year something in the middle of the day, there's a lot of prep, there's a lot of media stuff, push the car here, take it there, do the full field picture, you know, go here, double check everything in tech again, make sure this is not there. There's a lot of back and forth and a lot of prep just for the pit box. Like, where are you going to set up your chair behind the pit box? Where's your stuff going to be? You know, what are you going to get? So like me is like, you know, I spent 30 minutes prepping my little bag of, you know, I'm going to have a toothbrush, have a little deodorant, have all this other stuff. And, you know, yeah. and then, you know, just dealing with everything like that. And then the race starts at 2.30. So, yeah, and then know. the race starts. Right. And so, it's 24 so been, hours. Yeah, so we've been here for almost a full work day, and then it's green flat. Yep. And then basically every 50 to 55 minutes, there's a pit stop. So we do a pit stop, go across the wall, change tires, fuel, whatever, come back and sit down. And then once you are resting, you have basically 25 minutes to rest because you, you do your pit stop, you know, the adrenaline comes down, so you sit down. Maybe you have a snack or some water or whatever, and then you rest and you try to rest for 15 or 20, 30 minutes. And then when you know you're within five laps of pitting again, you're getting close Back to end. the wall. Yeah. Checking your tires, checking you have everything ready, making sure your gear is all set up and then back over the wall. And every 50 to 55 minutes, you're prepared to do that. Brutal. So you're in a 24 hours, 24 hour race. If everything goes well, you might do that 25 or 26 times. And then once you get to the, you know, to the night, you're starting to get tired. You're starting to get sleepy. And then at that time, you're trying to get naps in. So like you're trying to do 15, 20 minute power naps between pit stops and you'll see us all, you know, lined up. And there's even uh, somewhere on my Twitter feed, which I'll try to tweet whenever this comes out. There's, there's like, a, you know, from the NBC feed, there's me and my guys, we're just sleeping yeah. away. And, you know, and that's a 15 minute nap. All like, down you know, pit my, road. Everybody's doing it. 
yeah, yeah, that's that's the deal. You know, we had you know we had chairs and loungers and things set up. But other guys, you know, may not like it. Some guys sleep on the floor. Some guys bring blankets. Some guys bring slungies. I mean, there's all kinds of different <laughs> arrangements, you know. And but you have to be close to the car because if the car breaks, so you can be prepared to go. Because there's you know there's handlers usually for the drivers and handlers for the crew that stay awake all night or switch off. So they cannot wake us up or wake up the drivers when it's time for their stint. So they're just watching us and then taking care of us. So if I, you know, food, snacks, whatever, if we need anything, I can go to, you know, whoever our handler is at the time and just say, hey, you know, if stuff's not available, but there's stuff usually in the tent, you know, behind the pit. But if stuff's not available, I was like, hey, can I get this and this? And they'll make sure that I get it and right. have it in my hand, you know, so I can do my job. But it's there's a, a lot of that, trying to get as much sleep as you can, trying to stay hydrated and trying to stay energized. And then if stuff happens, you have to fix it. So we had some stuff that we, you know, had some incidents on track. So a car goes back to the garage, it's 2 a.m. You just sprinting to the garage, trying to repair it, get it back on Half track. Asleep. Because it correct, yeah, because it is an endurance race. Even if you go down three or four laps, there's you know, your competitors might go down five oh, yeah. or six laps. You so you're trying back. to repair it, get it back out as soon as possible and run it again. Keep there's running. No damage keep running, vehicle keep policy in a 24 nope. hour race. Nope, it just goes back. So, I mean, stuff happens like that. You just have to do it. And then that next day at 2.35 p.m., <laughs> the race is over. The cars get parked. And then if you're placed in a certain position, you go to technical inspection. If you're not in a certain position, you push your car back to the garage and start packing up. So we started packing at like 3 o'clock. And I think uh, by the time we got everything back, broke down our pit area, got everything in the trailer, it was like 7.30. So it was, you know, 7.30 p.m. So we started at 7.30 a.m., you know, Saturday and 7.30 p.m. Yeah. We closed the gates on the trailer. And then, hour you know, day. Yeah, yeah. And then at that point, some people went straight to bed and uh, some people went out. I was one of the people I said, I was like, I'm just going to go out, you know, just go go, uh, go somewhere sit each side, you know, just have a drink and just, you know, yeah. blow off some steam and then go to bed after that. And then teams typically schedule flights like late into the next day just so you can get some rest and sleep it off and then i think we flew out like the next day like 2 or 3 p.m but it's it's definitely a long process my god you're one of a kind mosey i tell you imsa man, like my thing is imsa seems to have like a bit of a resurgence in the last couple years or so and i don't know if you feel that way working in it but from the outside looking in i feel like the casual race fan in general is is watching more racing Whereas before, mm -hmm. if you were an NASCAR fan, that's all you watched. If you were an IndyCar fan, that's all you watched. But I feel like now, and I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head for viewership, but I feel like the Rolex did better. Um, Sebring, like Le Mans, there's more interest in IMSA races overall. And I know that you're in it. So do you feel that way as well? Or am I just kind of making something out of nothing? I I have I have kind of the same vibe. And like you said, I have to look at the exact numbers. But from what I remember from like last state of the sport or last state of the series, that that was the case. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with kind of some of the growth and also the crossovers. And me being inside the series, I, you know, first of all, you know, having so many people that follow me on social media, I tried to promote my team, tried to promote myself you and you know, well. us. Uh, thank you. And us as competitors, <laughs> but I also tried to promote the series because yeah. I feel I have a unique perspective because I have people that follow me from, you know, all walks of racing. And even some people are just car enthusiasts, not it's necessarily a big racing. platform. Use it. Yeah. So that's, that's what I try to do. And, you know, I try to work with, with everybody uh, and tr try to make the best of it. But I think that, you know, there's other people that are kind of, you know, seeing that out and feeling that out. But more than that, I think the biggest impact that recently has, you know, ha helped sports car racing is crossovers. 
So Jimmy Johnson coming over, people like Chase Elliott, even Kyle, Kyle Busch. So Kyle Busch was in our car last year. And that was, you know, just I, I wasn't with the team at that time, but just talking to the guys that were there then, they were like, it was just an incredible just difference to see like how many people showed up and how, how many people stayed along, even though Kyle Busch was that fourth driver for that mm -hmm. 24 hour race. So many fans that came to watch him stayed along and became long term fans of the team. So stuff like that, I feel like, you know, that's why I'm, I'm a big proponent of crossovers and I tried to bring as much attention as I can to it, you know, when that stuff happens. And that's why for next year. I'm hopeful of what's going to happen because of everything that's happening with NASCAR and the next gen car. And many teams are probably going to want their drivers in sports cars for the 24, just to get that that's experience fine. before, you know, they start, you know, for the clash or whatever it is. So I feel like it's going to be a, a big boom for IMSA to have all these crossovers coming from NASCAR and from other series from F1, you know, people like Kevin Magnuson coming along now within the Chip Ganassi car has been like incredible. And it's, it's just, for me, it's just really cool to see people like that. Uh, you know, one, one example I tweeted about recently was we were at Road America and at Road America, the catering service, like the main one has a tent that's set up like a huge tent that's set up like a cafeteria. They have kitchens and you just go through the line, just like kind of high school cafeteria style. You just go through the line and pick out what you want. And, right. it, you know, it's for, for teams and, you know, drivers and crews and, you know, team support personnel, PR, photographers and stuff like that. So it's, it's amazing, you know, to, to see, you know, somebody, somebody somebody like me that you know a few years ago i was you know just wrenching on miatas and now i'm standing in line because behind someone that was driving an f1 very recently wow. and, and we're, we're both going to go grab the same salad and then but like people like that you know bring all the fans from europe and people like that are just cool dudes you know are you know just good for the sports so i feel like there's a lot of positive elements that are happening and i feel like you know if the series and, you know, IMSA and NASCAR overall, if they can embrace some of this stuff and, you know, allow it to happen, I feel like it'll, you know, result in more growth. But, you know, it's a, it's definitely, there's definitely a big change in all of motorsport happening now with IMSA, yeah. you know, small changes coming next year with stuff like GTD Pro to bigger changes coming after that with, you know, the prototype, you know, formula changing completely. NASCAR going to next gen, Formula One going to their new car, even supercars in Australia, you know, going to their new generation cars too. So now it's like, a whole, whole different like world that's happening. And I feel like there's an opportunity for us to embrace it. And, you know, I try to do that every day if I can, because I feel like if, you know, racing grows, then it's help, helps all, all of us. And that's why I try to, you know, have people, if they're arguing about different types of series, just be like, hey, like, you know, it all helps us all. Like we don't need to a compare- rising tide lifts yeah, all boats. Correct, yeah. We don't need to compare, you know, us against each other because we can help each other. And that's also been my motto. Now that I have opportunities to go to see other stuff or even to work on other stuff, I try to do as much as I can. So Zach Veach, who was uh, in IndyCar last year, is now in one of our Lexuses. He's in the number 12 yep. car. Me and him have become friends, you know, since he joined the team. And he's been trying to do some dirt racing. So uh, he, uh, he ran a 410 sprint in Ohio. Uh, did some testing and I've gone with him now. He's like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, if you want to come watch, I was like, Hey, I want to watch, I want to learn from the mechanics that are working on the car because right. every time I've gone to a different type of racing, if I have the extra access, I've always learned something. So even though a 410 sprint car and a GT3 car are nowhere near, you know, close to each other, you can learn just from the, you know, different approaches people take, you know, what they're going to do. And, you know, that's that's kind of always been been my thing. And I've tried to learn from everybody and it helps me relate to them. And, you know, it helps me learn to make my craft better so I can be a better race mechanic or, you know, pit crew member or, you know, whatever I can do.
So you mentioned NextGen a couple times, and I wanted to ask you about your writing career because we're alike in that way. Even though I'm not a mechanic, we're both writers. Uh, and you've written a lot about NextGen, about the development of it, some different parts and pieces that are going to be on it that are different than the current car and that mirror what's going on in IMSA with sports cars. So I'll ask you point blank, Bozy. Is the next-gen car worth the hype? It depends on what, what the way you're looking at it. So I, I never I never try to speak in absolutes. I always speak in, you know, in, in detail of depending on how you use something. So okay. uh, in, in racing, I consider the car to be a tool. And the next-gen car is very similar to a GT3 car. And from what I've seen so far, I think it's going to be very good on road courses and street courses if they decide to do those. So for those that enjoy that type of racing, I think they're in for a treat. I think from what I've seen for how they race on intermediate tracks and what the aero kind of looks like, I feel like there's probably still some work to do there. So the, uh, as, the as far as the racing product, I think it's on a positive slope, but I want to see more before I have a final opinion. I want to see the cars, multiple cars on track right. before I have a final opinion that's on what that. We need. Now, as far as the spec formula and saving teams money, that's, I, I have very conflicting views of that because as we spoke recently you know i'm a big proponent of trying to make motorsports as healthy as possible so trying to save save money is one way to make it as healthy as possible but yep. i'm also a race mechanic i'm also a pit crew member and i see the writing on the wall and i see a lot of my colleagues that have been laid off a lot of my colleagues that are getting laid off right now and what's going to happen with these spec parts so it's it's a it's a it's a very tough tough transition for the sport and i feel like a lot of talent is going to get lost uh just because of going to spec parts and this you know i'm sure nascar from what i know it doesn't like be calling it spec but that's what it is everybody uses right. the same parts but yeah, going to that yeah yeah there's a lot of a lot of fabricators are lost a lot of engineering talent is lost i know i mean you know some engineers that have gone over to other racing series i know engineers that have gone to other industries and that's also an example of how talented uh the people are on the cup level is that engineers are getting snapped up by other racing series, you know, very quickly, or they're getting snapped up by companies that build things like spaceships. So like, that's, that's, you know, that's where, where this level of talent comes in is that, you know, a lot of these people that are leaving the sport are those types of people that, you know, here they were designing maybe, you know, some brackets for, you know, a, a, you know, track bar arm or whatever, but now they're building parts for a spaceship. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of stuff like that. So that's, that's the one sad thing I think about, but on the positive side, I am hopeful that they'll work through some of the stuff they have now and kind of stabilize the sport and maybe, you know, try to cut some of the costs and some of the things that have ballooned recently. And it's, there's still, like I said, that's a very fine line of how that's going to happen and what's going to happen because the big teams aren't just going to suddenly decide to cut their own budgets if they have the money available. Not going to happen. And, what they're going to do is there's stuff I've seen now just from seeing some of the part manuals and build manuals. There's stuff that me as a sports car mechanic that knows some technical information that I'm already seeing where you can find advantages in just playing in some of the smaller gray areas that I've seen, you know, before the rule book comes out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the big teams, what they're going to do is they're going to assign people to look at those gray areas specifically. They're going to run simulation and that's where it's going to, what it's going to come down to. And I think, at the at the you know beginning people are hopeful that it's gonna you're gonna have you know the top 25 mixed up every week but that's not gonna be the case the fast people are still gonna be the fast people what may happen is that that 22nd to 32nd or 35th place group they may get mixed up from week to week yeah. now but the top 20 or you know the powerhouse teams are still gonna be the powerhouse teams because they 
were already simulating this stuff, making drawings, doing all these kinds of things a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And that's, you know, where, where the small teams are just now trying to buy cars or just now assembling cars. So it's still going to be about what type of, you know, resources you have and who you have alliances with. And the way, the way I always try to explain it is you can give the same car to a Hendrick and the same car to a Rick Ware Racing, same chassis, same parts, they can assemble all of it. And you can give them the same exact setup, but if one has an engine that makes 20 horsepower more than the other one because it's brand new and built to you know the thousandth of a specification, yeah. while the other one is reusing an engine from last year, that other car, even though it has all the other components, that 20 horsepower is going to make a difference, you know, in however many tenths of a second per lap. And they're still, you know, they may not be a 35th place car now, they may be a 27th place car now, but they're still not going to compete with this other car. And that's kind of, you know, where all this stuff comes in and kind of how it works out. So it's, I, I'm hopeful that it'll bring some good stuff in and maybe reduce some costs, but there's, there's going to be, a, 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 I think, a, a lot of growth that's going to have to happen and uh, some pain points before we get to that point, which could be in two or three or four years, you know, when things kind of start to settle down and maybe start to get to IndyCar level of kind of, you know, com- competitiveness and compatibility. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. All right. I want to get to a lot more things. I don't think I'm going to do it. So I'm going to try to run through some of these rapid fire, Bozy, because you are an interesting man. You're like one of the most interesting men in motorsports. We need your own commercial. Thank you. Um, so let's start with racing spaces. I had Alanis on a couple weeks ago. This is officially a movement, uh, and I wish that I could always tune in. I've only been on like once or twice because I'm always busy when you guys do it. But I have to ask you the question, and I think I know what the question is, even though I've I never really heard it live on Racing Spaces because Lennis and I discussed it. But, okay, so first of all, the question is, how hot is Chris Angel on a scale from 1 to 10, right? Like, that is the question. Yes, yes. Okay, so that what's is, your yes. answer to the question? I think I settled on, like, a 4. And uh, that, that's 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 my recommendation. Oh, Lannis just turned this up. episode off right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's gonna. She's not gonna be pleased with me. She's no. uh. She's gonna. She's gonna send me angry messages. I'm sure whenever this comes on. But I think that was well, my what's answer. her reaction when you told her that for the first time? She's not happy. She. She. she I think she just ignored me. She just pre- pretended I didn't say anything. <laughs> I feel like that's 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 usually what I politic for when drivers you know ask me for my opinion. But I, it's you know racing spaces has been good and even you know wacky stuff like that like talking about chris angel just because alanis is passionate about it helps helps to kind of set the mood so everybody you have a whole spreadsheet don't you yeah 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 so uh, trisha westfall she does some stuff with uh, sam hunt racing she's part of it too and she keeps the spreadsheet she tries to collect all the information and recently we did some formulas to compare how different drivers rate them and we're going to try to do some more math on it yeah math on it to see you know whether you know, race winning drivers score, give better scores to Chris Angel versus <laughs> non-race winning drivers, you know, so we, we, we have some data there now okay. to play with. But yeah, racing space has been really good. It's been, it's been great for, you know, connecting with industry. And just because it's such a relaxed environment, a lot of people just come by just to, to joke around, but occasionally we'll get into some serious topics. So they may come around, you know, to talk about, you know, food or joke around about Chris Angel, and then we'll get into a serious discussion and have, you know, we've had, you know, people like Marcus Lamonis come on or, you know, to talk about sponsorship. And recently right. we had like, you know, Denny Hamlin come on to talk about, you know, track changes and next it's gen so, and stuff it's like so that. It's so casual, but it's so yeah, cool, you yeah. know? 
And it's it's all that's because you know everybody's at ease. It's not pre-scheduled. It's not formulated. Exactly. You know, with all this stuff. Because um, me personally, even though I write about NASCAR and cover NASCAR, I don't do very well at like press conferences, just because everybody seems to have this like theme of questions they ask about exactly what happened in the race. But for me, it's more about let me find about find out about this person or yeah. find out about this part, and then do some you know deep searching and you know get some I'm information out. So it's it's hard to do that. And in this environment, we just talk to the people, and they just kind of open up and, you know, give, give their opinion of it because it's, you know, more carefree. So racing space has been awesome. And it's literally something that just started out as like a, Hey, let's try this with uh, me and uh, Rebecca Faust. Uh, so it was basically a thing. She always like follows this new stuff on Twitter and she'll tell me about it. And we saw this and I was like, Oh, this sounds cool. We should try it out to talk about suits. And then I, I, I messaged uh, Alanis because Alanis is like my organized friend. So like whenever <laughs> I'm trying to do some stuff, I know like I can depend on her to help out and you know, just do yeah. it. She's, she's also very social with all this stuff. So like, let's three of us do it. And that's how Racing Space has started. We are. I saw this, saw this new feature and, you know, talked to Rebecca about it. She's like, let's do it. And then I invited Alanis to join. And then we had a bunch of people that joined for that first one we did, which was completely unexpected, you know, to just try this new thing and 150 people jumped on like in the first 30 minutes. And then after that first one, I picked out people that had joined. And I was like, DM them. I was like, hey, you guys want to join me again for this? And that's how the little core group started. And it's just been going from there. And, you know, we've had, I mean, we've had, you know, we've had, sessions where it'll break down because there's so many people that have joined or you know just because it's a, it's just a cool thing but it's, it's been very good for me and it's been hilarious that not once but twice now people have come up to me in airports during race weekends to ask if i'm the guy from racing spaces not if really? i'm a pit crew member or race mechanic or the writer hey are you the guy that hosts racing spaces just in random airports I'm like Damn. yeah <laughs> you're a celebrity <laughs> now no, but that's like the most hilarious thing is like this, this whole thing. And then, you know, me being a writer, you know, I write stories and stuff, but it's also like funny to me to see racing spaces being used as a reference in very serious, very analytical yeah. NASCAR stories from people that I respect. They're like, you hey, guys this are person, cited. Yeah. 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 This person joined racing spaces to talk about this. And these were his thoughts. I was like, that's amazing. So I'm, I'm always, I'm pleased. I'm a very social person. As you can tell, I could, you know, talk talk for hours and hours and hours so it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's a it's a good good environment for me to be able to communicate and you know and i've made friends through it and we've you know met other people so it's been very good where did your infatuation for biscuits come from and what makes a good biscuit that's the hard-hitting question that is an excellent question so growing up in north carolina there's biscuits everywhere and my uh i start it's i think it started maybe in high school when i got a car and i was able to go like instead of eating breakfast at home or whatever in the mornings, I would be able to have my own car. If I left a little early, I could hit up the drive-through and that was, you know, get, get a biscuit. And here locally, there's a, you know, family owned restaurant um, that's called the biscuit factory. And that's kind of where it started. I would go there get a biscuit and there'd be a lot of other people that would go there and that, you know, I was like, this is kind of good. So then I would try other places. And so like, that's like, you know, my, uh, my main thing is there, the local restaurant is the Biscuit Factory. And my favorite chain is Biscuit Will. So like I go to those, but if I go to a new town, like I recently went to uh, Napa, California, and that's the first thing I look up. It's like one day for breakfast, if I'm there multiple days, I want to get a biscuit. And then another day I'll get whatever the best thing Most is. Most people go to Napa for wine. You go for yes. biscuits. This is why yes. I like you both. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I did have some wine, uh, a lot of wine actually in the evening. But you dinner. went for the biscuits. I went for the biscuits, you know, just to make sure. So I, I biked to downtown Napa to this place called Contigo, 
and they had the most amazing biscuit. It wasn't anything like a Southern style biscuit, but their style, that's, you know, the thing is trying all these different locations geographically, like there's always fun stuff to try. So I've, I've, you know, just kind of started with the biscuit factory and grew from there. And now whenever I travel, I try to try new stuff and people suggest new stuff. And I've even had biscuits shipped in from other locations, like on dry ice for me to try because I haven't, you know, been able to travel, but you know, maybe yeah. somebody had a connection or wanted to, you know, you know, share some new stuff. So it's been, yeah, it's been cool. Yeah, it's been fun. And I enjoy, I enjoy all kinds of baked goods. I enjoy pies and cakes. And I was just going to talk about pie. I love yeah. pie. Like if yeah. I would have to rate dessert in terms yeah. of like cake, cookies, pie, brownies, pie is literally at the top. I love pie. It's great. Yeah. I'm glad that we I love had, pie. I had pie like three hours ago. Yeah, it was, it was apple. I know was you were tweeting good. about it. Also, yeah, great yeah. tweet today, and it connects to this conversation. You basically said, you were quoting somebody else, and you said, I post food and interesting tidbits, and it seems to work out for you and your following. So yeah. keep posting pie, keep posting biscuits. Yeah. And also, yeah. let's talk about uh, the bread or loaf of bread that your mom made I saw on your Instagram. What oh, is so, that? Because I want so, some of that. So that is like traditional Serbian bread. Uh, so I'm, I'm Serbian Orthodox, which is a type of Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, religion. So Greeks, Russians, all, all kind of fall under that kind of same umbrella. But basically, gotcha. in Serbian Orthodoxy, each family has like a patron saint. So our patron saint is St. George. And that is uh, St. George's Day is May 6th every year. So for that day, we, uh, we host like a family dinner and just make special stuff. And one of the things to like commemorate that day is a special bread. So my mom bakes fresh bread often just, you know, for, for it to have bread. But for that day, she'll make a special round bread and then she'll make decorations by hand. So they're little yeah. raised decorations and then she'll lay it by hand. It takes a Unreal. while for, like, for her to make that. But yeah, she was that was passed on to her from my grandmother who used to make that and just kind of passed on generation to generation. So that's been passed on for many generations, you know, from from her great, great, great grandmother to, you know, to her now. And it's just basically a, you know, a way to commemorate kind of our family patron saint and some of the family history and, you know, just to do, do something that's, you know, that's, that's beautiful. And then for the dinner that day, that bread gets cut up and that's like the bread to eat with that dinner. Yeah. It looked unbelievable. The design and was awesome and it also looked delicious. So I need to go get yeah. me some next yeah, May 6th. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. If, if you're here, come drop by. She's, she's always willing to share baked goods. And that's far, probably partly where my love of baked goods comes from is yeah. she's baked, you know, since I've been a kid. So all kinds of different stuff. So yeah, definitely come try it. I will. Okay. Tell me about your approach on dating apps and whether or not you've had success with said approach. I mean, I have a lot of different approaches and that's, okay. you know, my thing, uh, my thing with dating apps is, you just kind of have to be polished. So look at it as like you're selling yourself. And I think it might be bad to say, but part of it is comes from my history of just being a car salesman. So owning a car dealership, I know how to talk to people to you know present yeah. yourself. But a lot of it is just being presenting yourself and being direct. And I think that's what like, you know, uh, from a guy's perspective, what a lot of people get wrong is they like to chit chat on dating apps. And some people, maybe that's what all they want is just to have somebody to chit chat with. But like my approach is have a polished profile and get to the point, like have a few exchanges. So the other party feels comfortable. And then once you've kind of, you know, just set the scene, ask for a direct, more direct contact method. Then, uh -huh. you know, for, for me being in my mid thirties, that's, Hey, can I have your number so I can call you or so I can text message you. And, you know, for some of the younger guys the Snapchat, all this stuff. And I use Snapchat occasionally, but I'm not a big fan of that because it just doesn't seem as direct, but basically yeah. here's, 
can I have your number? Yes. Okay. You have the number. Hey, this is me. Save my number. Okay. What are you doing tomorrow at 5 PM? Do you want to go try this place? And that's it. It's that simple. You don't have to chit chat back and forth. And you know, it's, it's, it's a like, whole simple deal is like, you know, you just do your thing, be direct and communicate communication. Uh, uh, you know, communication is a big deal. And I have to give credit uh, to my friend Megan for that. She's all, she's, she's like my, uh, like my advice person when it comes, you know, for feedback. Your sounding these, board, yeah. Yeah. It's for some of these things and like what my wing woman and certain things, but like, that's <laughs> all it comes down to. Like, just be direct. Like that's, it works out very, very easily. And you know, that's, you know, there's this whole, uh, whole TikTok thing about, you know, like these guys with these, like, you know, these women that seem out of their league. And that's all it is. It's like, if you can talk, doesn't really matter what you look like. If you're confident <laughs> in who you are, you'll get there. What's your dating app of choice? Or do you have multiple? I have multiple. So I use, I, I like, I use Bumble and Hinge mostly. I like Hinge uh, because of the prompts. And yep, me too. I like, I like, yeah, I like Bumble because it seems like a little more commitment from that. Tinder is okay, but Tinder seems more like for like casual, just, you know, you know, yeah. do whatever kind of not, not very serious stuff, but uh, Hinge I like because I can lay out some prompts and if I lay out interesting things. So right now I have one about baked goods, one prompt. Uh, is basically saying, you know, I like brownies, pies, and biscuits, and then saying I had a biscuit incident, and then a lot of women will reply back to that prompt, like, what's the biscuit incident? Uh -huh. Simple, there you know, you people go. get started. Then I have another prompt, which I came from Megan, about penguins and pebbles and how penguins share pebbles and all this other stuff. That was like, oh, that's cute. And then I have pictures of me, mostly pictures of me just doing fun things. So hanging out with my friends, hiking, hanging yep. out on my porch, like one Hopefully picture. right now there's some people in the North Carolina area just swiping on hinge and seeing Bozy right now and responding and saying, what's the biscuit incident? See, there you go. But that's the thing is if you do that, you know, just have a fairly polished profile. What I find is that I don't have to swipe every day. Like there'll be women that will come on their own and they'll reply yeah. back to those prompts. And then I can just go in there and see who replied back to my prompts. Yep. And if it seems like somebody I want to meet, the conversation has already been started. I just have to reply and go from there. So it's not like a, you know, a whole, whole deal where I'm just chasing, chasing and chasing. It's like they come to you because you have something interesting to say. Yeah, no, I'm all for hinge. I reconnected with my girlfriend on hinge. We knew each other from high school, but then we reconnected. So I'm, I'm all on the hinge train. Okay. Real quick. What, what's the biscuit incident? I have to ask now. So I've attempted to make my own biscuits once. And that was last year. And I just ended up with a lot of dough on my counter. I didn't get the mixture right. And uh, I haven't really tried it since then, uh, okay. mostly because I'll go buy biscuits at the restaurant. My mom can make biscuits. And uh, some women that I've dated since, you know, in the past have also been able to make biscuits. So I haven't really had the need to make biscuits, but I'm going to try to do it again too. Bill. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It's just, you just go, go, go with what I know, you know, yeah. go with, you know, Biscuitville or the biscuit factory or go, you know, go see my mom or friends who know how to bake it. But that was, I just ended up with a lot of dough all across my kitchen counter. It was just a whole mess. And I think I tweeted about it at some point, but it wasn't good. So is the key to get a mix of fluffy, chewy, but also crunchy on the outside and buttery flaky. It's a lot of stuff that's, going on. That's yeah, why it's hard yeah. to perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of elements. Yeah, you want you want the, the little crispy on the outside, right. but you want the flakiness and you want a little bit of an air pocket, you know, where you can. And then you want that buttery kind of, you know, just a little bit greasy, but not the, like it's dripping. So it's like all this yeah. stuff that has to happen all at once. And it's you have to be pretty good at it to get the right one. Like I think most people can make like a 70% biscuit, but to make like a 99 percentile biscuit, you need to be really good. Yeah, well, hopefully you can teach 
teach some people their ways. A uh, couple more things. How do you feel knowing that most people that don't know you and have never had a conversation with you probably think that you're a robot? It's uh, it's it's an interesting scenario, and uh, it's you know <laughs> perpetuated by certain professional racing drivers. Yeah. And uh, see, in those situations, what you do is you take it and own it. So mm-hmm. they, you know, they they tried to fight me with this. Tried to you know spread these rumors that are definitely not true. I've never done. And you just robotic. make merch. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, we're gonna do this. I own it now. It's my thing now. So I'm gonna yep. make merch. I'm gonna sell merch with you it. Literally. I'm gonna use it. it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I'm going to make a hashtag now so people know it. But no, it's, it's, it's been a fun thing. And that's, uh, I think uh, that part of that is credited to uh, uh, Sean Heckman and Ryan's, Brian Eversley when uh, they started making jokes when we did some stuff with their uh, iRacing broadcast. And then Mike Snyder jumped in and kind of, you know, started uh, pushing it too. And it's actually worked out for me. It's been a cool deal. You know, people, yeah. people make jokes about it and I've been able to use it as a promotional tool. So it works out both ways. I heard you've done some learning recently when it comes to astrology. I want to hear more about this. Oh, so if we go back to the dating app bit, that's actually okay. been like like a secret tool. So I didn't know anything about astrology until like last year. And then uh, last year, like Megan and Devin and so, some of the other people I hang out with, you know, my friends here, uh, they were like, ah, you know, talking about astrology and all this other stuff. And then Megan, because she wants a bunch of people to be her friends on this CoStar app, tries to talk everybody into getting on the CoStar app. So eventually she talked me into it. I was like, ah, this is dumb, blah, blah, blah. I assume that's just, like, is that an astrology app, CoStar? Yeah, it's like an astrology social network app where basically it hmm. gives you your like, or whatever your sign is, it gives you what your things are for the day, who you should be doing stuff with that okay. day and, you know, how you're, you know, spiritual, social life, whatever, you. how, you know, what the feel is. Horoscope and then, focused. Exactly. And then all the people you're friends with, it tells you what stuff you should do together, whether you're compatible for something that day or whether you should talk to somebody that day or whether somebody's going to pour their feelings. I like all this other stuff. Interesting. So, like, so I was like, okay, whatever. So I signed up for it. And then, you know, eventually she was uh, very persuasive with this because I learned about this. Like I wasn't even trying to learn about it, but, you know, we'd be talking about doing, doing whatever and she talked about it. And then I was like, well, you know, and the the thing that stuck with me is the point that she eventually made after sharing all this is like, you know, because she's my friend, she's interested in it. That's why I had some interest in it. But she also made the point is like a lot of women are into astrology. And she was like, if you know this, it's a topic that you can show interest in. That's very easy, you know, to, to, to ask about. Got and a lot of good wing about. women. Yes, yes. So. And so I started using it to my advantage on dating apps. So like Bumble and Hinge, I think maybe even Tinder, a lot of them will have a field where you could put what your, uh, your astrology sign is. So that was like an easy opener. It's like, hey, I see you're this, blah, blah, blah. Or if they put something in their bio talking about astrology, I would reply back referencing that and just ask questions because I honestly didn't know. So I would ask different questions each time. And it's so, off the you beaten know, path too. It's not like something correct. that they get a lot. So it's smart. Exactly. Yeah. So I would ask for them to teach me about it. And, you know, just from a personal perspective, people ask me to teach them about something that I'm passionate about. I'll talk about it for hours as you're experiencing here, you know, talking about race cars <laughs> or biscuits or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, there's, you know, if somebody lists that in their bio, I know that she's interested in it and it became an easy you know, topic of conversation, whether it's on a dating app exchange or even on a first date of, Hey, 
you know, I saw this, this, and this, and then you start talking and she can talk for a while and I can ask follow-up questions because I'm genuinely interested yeah, to learn different yeah. perspectives of this. And then just kind of ended up, you know, working out that way. So I, I, I deny a lot of it publicly, but I've learned a lot about astrology from my friends and just from, you know, different women I've gone out with telling me different things. Okay. I will say this. Uh, I'm going to preface it by saying, uh, I think astrology is really dumb and horoscopes. Like I'm not, I'm not with it, but I want to get on your side and I want to at least learn a little bit more about it and see where yeah. the infatuation and the passion comes from. So you have my word when I get down to Charlotte eventually, cause I'll be there hopefully at some point soon, we're Excellent. getting biscuits. We're All playing right. softball. Cause Brad gave yeah. me a standing invite yes, and you're going to teach me yeah. a little bit about astrology and then we'll so go from there. There we go. That's perfect. Cause you'll have, if you come to softball, you'll have the whole astrology group because they usually come hang out. We have okay. dinner and stuff afterwards. So you'll have the experts, the ones that taught me there at dinner. So they'll be able to teach you all, all the all the tips and tricks. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I guess we'll find out. It's, it's been positive for me, but communication is key. Just communicate and you'll yes. learn things and you'll make friends. It absolutely is. This has been awesome, man. I'm so glad that we finally were able to sit down and chat for a little bit because I really mean it. You are a Swiss army knife in motorsports because you have an eclectic background. You're a mechanic. You know a lot of stuff about a lot of different motorsports series. You write about stuff. You're a great food connoisseur as well. Uh, it was a great joy to talk to you, my man. I can't wait to hopefully see you in person sometime soon at the racetrack or at Biscuitville or anywhere in between. Um, it's been awesome, man. And best of luck the rest of the season on track because Vassar Sullivan's got some business to get to take care of. So we'll be watching, I'm sure. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. This was a lot of fun. And I, I look forward to bumping into you, hopefully, at a race somewhere soon or here in Charlotte, grabbing a biscuit. Absolutely, man. It's got to be flaky. It's got to be crunchy. It's oh, got to yeah. be good. So Trust I may me. not have if, a biscuit until I get down there. I really might yeah, not. Yeah. If you show up here, we're going places. So you should be prepared. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Bozy. It's been awesome, man. Thank you. And we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Bozy. No, he is not Bozo the Clown, and no, he's not a robot, as we talked about. He kind of is, though. He's leaning into it, which I'm all for. And Bozy, I mean it. When I come down to Charlotte next time, I want a biscuit. I want your mom's bread, because that looked unbelievable. And I will play softball, and I will relive my glory days as a bench warmer. So I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate your time, your perspective, and your story. It was great to catch up, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Before we close out the show this week with a little Daytona preview and some lug nuts, one more sponsored read for y'all. It's always Rhino Classifieds. They came on the scene recently with the bang. They gave away Von Gittin Jr.'s drift truck. And Rhino was created by the founder of Racing Junk because he wanted to create a more streamlined buying and selling app that allowed users to just see what they wanted rather than all those ads that get in the way, all the random crap nobody wants. So head on over to rhino.co, sign up for a free account. You can post and find whatever you're looking for. Rhino.co, classified for racers, built by racers. It's all come down to this. The regular season finale at Daytona International Speedway. 15 spots, one remains. Who will get it? I should do voiceovers for commercials. NASCAR, you hiring? Please, I'm available. I don't know what to expect. Even if you know, then please tell me because I think you're lying. Austin Dillon and Tyler Reddick, they're battling in terms of points for the last spot of the playoffs. But as we know, when it comes to Daytona, when it comes to super speedways, when push comes to shove, 
literally and proverbially, especially this weekend, points probably won't matter because you could be Anthony Alfredo, you could be Bubba Wallace, you could be Ricky Stenhouse Jr., you could be Ross Chastain. Name your driver inside the top 30 of points, and if you win this race on Saturday night, you're in the playoffs, for better or for worse. We saw Michael McDowell have a bit of a surprise win in the Daytona 500 at this very track. We've seen winners at Talladega happen before that have been a bit surprising. Justin Haley, remember when he won this race a couple years back? Uh Uh-huh. William Byron, remember when he needed to win probably to get in last year and he won this race? Uh Uh-huh. So anything can and will happen. And again, I don't know what to expect. I don't think anybody else does. But one thing is for sure. I think NASCAR hit a home run with making this the regular season finale. I talked about it on the Front Stretch podcast. I talked about it in my Front Stretch column this week. I was vehemently against this at the start. I said, you should not have a playoff deciding race at a super speedway. There's too much unpredictability associated with it. There's too much luck involved with it. Take it to a legit track. And then I thought, that's not true. Because you had 25 weeks leading up to Daytona, which happens to be the regular season finale, to lock yourself in, to win a race, to do what you had to do to point yourself in, gather playoff points, put yourself in a good position, to not have to worry about things come the last race of the regular season. So no, this is a great idea. And we saw last year, the race was great. The intensity was ratcheted up. It was edge of your seat, thrilling, bone-chasing racing. It was awesome. So I think NASCAR hit a home run with this idea. It probably is going to stay for a long, long time to come. Have the 500, have the regular season bookends with Daytona, and I think it's a great idea. So be sure to tune in to the Coke Zero Sugar 400 Saturday night on NBCSN at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, knocking on wood, praying for no rain, and the Wawa 250 on Friday night for the Xfinity Series. I personally am a Sheets guy because that's what I grew up with at camp, but there's a Wawa down the street from our apartment in D.C., so I don't know. Sheets has my heart, but Wawa has the geography. Let's close out the show, everybody. By the way, Robin has returned, and she's probably going to give me some death glares when I do this, but... Look, nuts of the week! Cue that funky music, white boy. No death glares, just eating her salad. Crosley Brands is sponsoring Myatt Snyder in four additional races in the Xfinity Series this year. We know that JTG Doherty has some cool sponsors with their associations with Kroger and all those brands. Funfetti, you guys know that cake, that cookie, Funfetti? Yeah, they're sponsoring Ricky Stanhouse Jr. at Daytona, and you bet they're going to get some TV time because... We know Ricky knows a thing or two about getting around Daytona. How about Subway buying out Jimmy John's in terms of the Stuart Haas racing deal? And they will now sponsor Kevin Harvick in two races in the playoffs, Bristol and Kansas. And they have joined forces with that powerhouse organization. So no more Jimmy John's. They've been scaling back their involvement in recent years. And Subway basically came in and said, yeah, no more of you. Bye-bye. So Subway on board with Stuart Haas racing and Kevin Harvick. MIS president Rick Brenner, he has stepped down from his role, did not know this, but he had also been working as a minor league baseball owner in New Hampshire. So he's going to go back and do that full time, but congratulations to him on a wonderful tenure. Landon Castle, great news for him and everybody because everybody loves Landon. He has joined Gaunt Brothers Racing for the remaining Super Speedway races in the Cup Series coming this weekend at Daytona and then in the coming months at Talladega. 
Eric Jones, not only did he announce his foundation, getting that off the ground this week at his home track at Michigan, but he also announced that he's returning to Richard Petty Motorsports in 2022. So he's going to be at the 43 for 2022 at least. Emmett Smith, yes, that Emmett Smith, and Jesse Awuji, of course, the Navy veteran, they're teaming up to start an Xfinity Series team full-time for next season. So we'll see how that does and how they do. But congratulations to them. Really cool stuff going on there. I'd like to get Jesse on the show to talk about his perspective on life and in racing. So maybe down the road we'll be able to get that done. Congratulations to them. We love to see more diversity, more diverse owners in the sport. It's awesome stuff. And, of course, Kyle Larson, he won other races besides NASCAR. He wins the BC39 and a midget at Indy. And then he also goes and wins at Sharon Speedway in a dirt late model. Cue DJ Kyle because all the dude does is win. And last but not least, Cup Series penalties. Bubba Wallace's crew chief, Mike Wheeler, and Cody Ware's crew chief, Mike Hillman. They were both fined 10 grand for loose lug nuts post-Michigan. And Ross Chastain's car chief has been suspended for a race due to an axle. I think Alex LeBay's crew chief actually had the exact same penalty, and Ryan Sieg's crew chief did as well. So something going on with axles lately in Xfinity and Cup, but hopefully they get that all figured and ironed out. That'll wrap things up for episode 122 of Victory Lane 2.0. Thank you to Bozy for coming on. Thank you to Dad for the Wayback segment. And thank you for listening every day, every week, always, forever. I appreciate you guys so much. I really do from the bottom of my heart. If you haven't already, it would mean a lot to me, and it helps me out in terms of spreading the word, gaining some awareness for the show. If you were to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. But we're also available on Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, wherever you get your pods. We should be there. And if we're not, let me know and I'll try to fix that for you. But leave us a rating and a review. That really, really helps us out. I would appreciate it. Until next time when we have another guest on from the world of NASCAR. I have it in the can, so I'm not going to jinx anything, but I think it'll be a great conversation. I look forward to you guys listening and I look forward to sharing it with you guys. Enjoy Daytona. Stay safe. Stay dry if you're down there in Daytona. Get vaccinated, people, and we'll catch you on the flip side.